everyone, welcome to the OFD Bookcast. I am your host, Joshua Voles, Site Manager, Emperor, Supreme Warlord, and Defender of the Faith over at OneFootDown.com on the SB Nation Network. And that's right again, this is another bookcast. We are, uh, or I am, uh, f- flying into the world of book reviews uh, in this uh, coronavirus pandemic world that we're in. And uh, once again, uh, we, we're continuing on. This is the second part uh, of I don't know how many parts uh, this is <laughs> going to end up being, uh, covering the book Notre Dame's Greatest Coaches uh, by Moose Krause and uh, Stephen Singular, uh, mostly written by Singular. Uh, Moose um, Singular was more than a ghostwriter here, uh, but this is a book, again, that was – it talks about all Notre Dame's great talks about the greatest coaches and it does it through the eyes of Moose Krause and also through the eyes and through the feels of the 1992 uh, Notre Dame football season. And, uh, and it's important. It's a good read. Um, again, if, you, if you're just listening to this for the first time, wondering what the hell this is, uh, just go back a few episodes on the uh, OFD podcast podcast. Uh, there that you that you should be downloading and and uh, subscribing to uh, and rating five stars and giving reviews, um, but go back down there. Uh, uh, there there's an episode called uh, you know Moose uh, almost threw a dean across the room or or something like that, and that is the first one. Uh, so if you want to listen to that and then come back to this, that'd be great. Uh, if you're already there, uh, you know we can get uh, we can get started. But uh, first, I just want to make sure I. Get across everybody to uh, please uh, keep practicing your social distancing, uh, keep washing your hands, uh, keep trying to stay sane. I know this is a, a weird, strange, and, and and for a lot of people, very tough time um, for many, many reasons. Uh, so, you know, I'm hoping that these things are an outlet. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you, I, we, I seem to have got, I got a pretty good response back from the first one. I kind of felt like I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, written about books, book reviews, and all that stuff before. Never have done a podcast about one. Uh, and wasn't exactly sure on how to go about it. Just kind of winged it. Uh, so, you know, be a lot more of the same uh, same this time around. So, uh, let's get going. So, when we left off, it was... Uh, you know, we're talking about Rock's death and, you know, and all that good stuff. And and in Chapter 3, it, it takes a, a hard turn into the 1992 season. Um, it was a season that was, <clears throat> you know, there was a lot of hopes uh, pinned on the 92 season. And in the book, it, it talks about that quite a bit uh, in, in the beginning of the chapter, um, you know, Talking about uh, Blue and Gold Illustrated, and, uh, their their preview was you know making a run at number one, um, and then it it starts going into uh, you know just everything that uh, the we talk about when we talk about Notre Dame and national championships. You know that this is this is what Notre Dame wants. Uh, Holt said that they don't even talk about it anymore. They just know that's the expectation. Uh, but you know it all it also brought up some some startling numbers like the defense. Uh, you know, 135 points in 88, and it had gradually worked itself up to 261 points in a season uh, in 1991. So 
the defense was a huge issue, despite the fact that they had some really talented players, um, such as you know Devon McDonald, uh, Jeff Burris, one of my all-time, my all-time favorite player, really. Um, Tom Carter, a great cornerback, uh, and Demetrius Debose, another one of my, uh, one of those hidden favorites uh, people don't talk about enough. Um, but uh, you know, this is also the season where. Uh, Demetrius Debose was suspended the first two games of the season uh, for taking, uh, I think it was like 600 bucks or something like that as a loan. Uh, and it was the first time Notre Dame had ever had some kind of like NCAA thing about players and money, uh, so, which was a huge deal at the time. Um, I think nowadays, it'd, yeah, it would suck. But uh, back then it was it was huge. It was just like, oh, my God, what, you know, what's Notre Dame doing? You know, not Notre Dame. Uh, but th- you know that was the that was generally what's going on offensively. Notre Dame was stacked: Rick Meyer, Jerome Bettis, um, uh, Reggie Brooks, Lake Dawson. Uh, really, really stacked. And the, and the book does a good job of of really laying out um, the expectations for the season, what the and what they had. Uh, then it so then it goes into Notre Dame's first game of the season against Northwestern, and. <clears throat> You know, I'm trying to think back. You know, 1992, I was what 14 years old, uh, and although I remember a lot from that season, um, it, I was still just 14 years old. Uh, you know, so it's some of the details remain fuzzy. Uh, they've been bolstered by, um, you know, thankfully YouTube uh, videos throughout the years of watching stuff, uh, but there was. There was points in that season for sure, uh, most of the important ones that, that have stuck with me for uh, throughout the rest of my life. So um, th- this isn't like me talking about the 88 season where um, it'd be much harder for me to talk about um, considering I was only 10 years old. And, you know, just to me, I feel like you need to experience the stuff, like full experience like these seasons to really talk well about them. Uh, and, you know, I and this book, uh, you know, this book is you know really interesting because we're talking about great coaches of the past, and all, none of these games, you know, I, I re- saw uh, <laughs> outside of the old era, um, but it does a good job of kind of diving into uh, to, to what was going on, um, and then you pick up pieces, you know, here and there over the years, you know, especially covering Notre Dame, the people you talk to, uh, but I really like like to keep my. When I'm talking about a season, like keeping it on focus on a season that I that I know some things about that I can talk intelligently about, and not just making shit up or just uh, <laughs> or whatever. But anyways, but it gets into that Northwestern game, and and I really do remember that. You know, Notre Dame kind of struggled a little bit at first, uh, and then they end up just kind of turning it on, uh, and they end up winning that game, forty-two to seven. Um, Reggie Brooks had uh, one hundred fifty-seven yards on the ground. Uh, had a big touchdown run. Rick Meyer had a big uh, touchdown pass. Notre Dame looked okay, but they, you know, a lot of fans were were uh, unsatisfied with the result. Um, Lou Holtz was satisfied was unsatisfied with the with the result. Fans were. I mean, it was just kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, it was Northwestern. So I mean, I, maybe it was a lot like uh, coming out of the Vanderbilt game from eighteen. I don't know. I, it just there wasn't a whole maybe well not that bad, <laughs> but there's just a whole lot of dissatisfaction and the fact that Notre Dame was going to be facing Michigan the very next week led right on you know 
kind of bullshit that they thought they should be looking better going into that game. So, so the book then takes us into in, into this Michigan game and ninety, you know, explains about ninety one Notre Dame losing twenty four fourteen. You know, that was the one with the uh, Gerbach. It seemed like he didn't throw an incompletion most of that game. Uh, big touchdown pass to to Desmond Howard. That was kind of one of his his Heisman moments of that uh, in that year. Um, but you know, it gets into the game, and this is kind of where things really get interesting for Notre Dame uh, early on in the season. And that was the fact that you know it was a tie game. It ended in a tie, and with uh, just a little bit over a minute left in the game. Uh, Notre Dame had the ball on their 11 yard line, and Holtz uh, ran the ball the first play. I mean, he, his play calling. I mean, he basically drained the damn clock. I called a running play, um, and then another run. Uh, it, it was just. It was just. Uh, it did not look like he was trying. Uh, so at the end of the game, they're tied. You know, everyone's kind of upset. And back, you know, it's hard to imagine tied ball games anymore. But. You know, the, it just always left you with a taste in your mouth, like, what the, you know, what's left? You know, shouldn't there be something else? You know, uh, Gary Moeller was feeling that way. Holtz was saying he felt that way. But what was interesting was um, just everything that happened after that game. Um, and, it, and it happened right away. Notre Dame fans booed. Uh, you know, it was a 17-17 tie against Michigan. Uh, I can't remember what Michigan was ranked at, um, at that time, but that uh, too important for right now, but uh, it's Michigan, and you, you tied them, and it looked like you were playing for the tie there at the end, much like the '66 Michigan State game. So uh, I'm going to read you a passage here, passage here about uh, uh, you know about <clears throat> about Holtz right after the game. I mean, we're talking about on the field talking to um, to NBC. So as Holtz was moving toward the locker room, NBC's John Dockery, a former pro football player who covers the games from the sidelines, approached him and asked why the coach had been so conservative in his play calling on the last drive. Why hadn't he come out throwing the ball deep in order to get in position for a long field goal? Why hadn't he called timeout after the penalty? Had he been content to play for a tie? When Holtz replied that he started off with a running play to see what kind of pass defense Michigan was in so that the Irish could throw the ball later, Dockery didn't find this answer acceptable. He asked the same thing again, and the situation became awkward. Holtz realizing that either his judgment or his honesty was being questioned. The two men abruptly parted company, and the standing room only crowd, along with a huge national television audience, were left in their, to draw their own conclusions. And in subsequent days, Holtz gave a more elaborate analysis of his thinking during the final minute of the game. He was worried about Meyer tossing interception deep into the Irish territory, and equally concerned about the punting from the from the field position because the two men who handled the lawn snaps were injured. But perhaps he said it best to some reporters. You got so many things to take into consideration in about 25 seconds. You can second guess all you want, but it's my job to make a final decision. So, I mean, this was a, I mean, this was a big deal. And I, and I want to just add this too. for as much as I love this book and, and, I don't quite remember this. Like I said before, I read it like eight or nine times in high school. This is an awful uh, edit job in this book. There are so many um, errors in here, uh, like ridiculous, like grammar errors, uh, spelling errors, uh, 
uh, years that should not be the the year written down. Uh, one time they have 1993 down. It should have been 1933. Uh, I just wanted to say that if you're reading this book, it's not just you. Unless unless you got a, a better edited copy, this is pro- this is a first, this is a hardcover um, first print edition than I got. Uh, so someone did a very poor job, and this is coming from someone who's uh, who's not the greatest uh, as far as clean copyright goes, but. You know, you got an editor, you know, I assume he has a salary, you should pay him. Anyways, uh, so maybe some of these passages I'm going to read, uh, maybe they'll sound a little iffy uh, because they, they're just edited poorly. Uh, but it, it was just it, this whole thing with Holtz and the tie, it was it was a big, big deal. And the funny thing is, it, it sounds so familiar to what goes on with Brian Kelly. I mean, there's, I guess it would be with any Notre Dame coach, but let let me just, let me read you this and and (laughs) see if this sounds familiar to you uh, as a Notre Dame fan. And and if if something like that would happen with Brian Kelly, if anyone had ever doubted the scope or the seriousness of Notre Dame football, a tie with Michigan should have obliterated those notions for good on radio talk shows all across the country. The game and Holtz's strategy were hot topics of conversation. Sports writers everywhere had fodder for at least a week's worth of columns. Irish fans scribbled angry letters to the BGI, to Blue and Gold Illustrated, attacking the coach. Some even asking for him to be relieved of his duties, while other Irish supporters wrote letters in his defense. People debated the issue on South Bend Street corners and in Chicago bars. They either disliked the way NBC had covered the postgame, or they admired John Dockery's work. That is just, this is 1992, and this is Lou Holtz, and people were, you know, angry letters uh, back then are the same as uh, going to the message board, uh, basically. It's a lot easier to go to the message board than it was write an angry letter, but it's, it's the same thing. I mean, you really got to be pissed to send out a letter. Uh, so, you know, those are probably the, the most severe ones, uh, but it, it's just funny how it, it all sounds so the same. People are calling to fire Lou Holtz, who had won a national title in 88. This is 1992. This is just mind-blowing to me. Um, and, you know, a lot of Holtz's history at Notre Dame is kind of whitewashed a little bit as it is. And especially alumni like to whitewash it because a lot of them are guilty, just the same as, like, Holtz's departure. And I don't want to get really get into all that, but, um, you know, a lot of the rough stuff – that went on during those years gets totally overlooked now when they, they place Holtz on such a huge pedestal and, and putting, putting him up against uh, like Brian Kelly. And you now look, you know, Holtz is a great coach. He's got a fucking statue in a, excuse me, uh, a statue in a national championship. Uh, it, it's probably not the fairest thing to put, Kelly up against that, although Kelly's got 10 years at Notre Dame. I'm just saying that the comparisons there of what went on after a tie uh, is so familiar to what goes on today. So, I mean, this stuff was so big. Like He, he went on a press conference. The book talks about he goes on a press conference to, to talk about this game, and uh, it was even on CNN, uh, which is just... Uh, Oh, man, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Uh, another passage. 
After listening to all this, one can only conclude that the many commentators who have said that football is not rocket science haven't been paying attention lately. The depth of analysis that followed the Michigan-Notre Dame tie was usually reserved for national debt, congressional scandals, and the behavior of Madonna. When things quieted down, each team still had 17 points. So yeah, it was a ruckus. I mean, absolute ruckus uh, within the national media uh, and within the, the whole Notre Dame world, um, you know, after that game. And the thing was, is, I mean, as much as it gets talked about, and you know, Holtz went on that press conference, uh, that Holtz went in great detail about what his thinking was. Uh, so that's kind of why it said, you know, uh, when you, like what was talking about, you know, not rocket science, the way Holtz talked about it, it was rocket science, uh, the way he was going over the details on that, explaining himself. So it, it was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, <laughs> the next week, though, they play Michigan State. They beat them up like 52-31. Uh, I guess that would be a good thing. And they were still kind of feeling – uh, kind of, you know, a little bit of whatever. Uh, but, you know, it, that's what this book is. You know, this uh, that's why I really like this book. Uh, I love the way that it, 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 here we go, we're, we're getting into that that bit of season. We're going to get uh, get some insight into, into Holtz, uh, you know, up close and personal and all that. So then it goes on, and then, you know, in the next chapter, and it, it goes into great, great detail. And it's really... Uh, it, 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 this huge foreshadowing for the Stanford game uh, is basically what this whole next chapter is. It it talks about the um, oh the, the the pep rallies and the, everything that gets involved in a, in a Notre Dame football weekend up there back then. It talks about the Notre Dame quarterback club, uh, which I which many of you know is was something that you know you, you paid like I think it said they paid them like eleven bucks a pop, uh, for, for the week. And you, it was a luncheon and, and Holtz would bring a couple of players, players and, you know, they'd, there'd be these speeches and they'd take questions. And I, I can't imagine Brian Kelly and Ian book and, um, <laughs> I don't know, Tommy Tremble, uh, having to like go there and, and go somewhere and have a lunch deal with this. But this was the thing back then. It was disbanded in the mid nineties, uh, with the whole, uh, Kim Dunbar scandal. I think it was at 97, something like that. Uh, but, uh, this was a thing. Uh, and they, they do this all the time. And it was, it was a packed house and it had not just Notre Dame fans, but you know, Notre Dame alumni, but also had, uh, friends of the other school and, and stuff like that. It was a, it was a big deal. Um, the book talks about how, you know, uh, Reggie Brooks it looked like it was just pure torture for him to be up there and totally get that. Uh, and, the, and it made it, uh, made it a pretty good point to talk about Holtz uh, and the way he, uh, the way he delivered his speeches there. Um, and in this one in particular, the one before the Stanford game in 92, uh, it, it had shown that he was, things have really gotten to him. Uh, like that Michigan game was still weighing on him uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, it's uh, you know he talks about never be afraid to tell people you love them. He said, "Children need to hear this, and adults need to hear this, and everyone needs to hear this much more than we realize. Families need this now. Don't ever be afraid to say it to those around you, and don't ever be afraid to cry. We need to connect with each other and tell each other that we care." I mean, 
the, his whole manner, uh, you know, according to Singular here, had shifted completely from, you know, kind of the jokester, um, you know, always, you know, with the self-deprecating, you know, humor that, that Holtz had. But it shifted to his words, and he did it a couple times in, in the speech. Um, and it, Singular writes here, he says, listening to him, you were struck by many things, but mostly by the realization that few people in American public life speak with such force and conviction. Conviction. We don't expect our politicians to say much because they're afraid of offending someone or appearing vulnerable. The coach up on the podium seemed to be drawing his strength from the very fact that he was vulnerable to criticism, to his own feelings, and to the feelings of others. So, I mean, that's, I mean, and we all know that about, I mean, we know that about Lou now. Pretty, like, that's one of the big things about Lou that we all know, and the, the way he gave speeches and talked. In 92, it was still, I won't say a mystery, but it, it wasn't as widely, like, it, it wasn't gospel yet. Um, knew he's a great motivator that, um, and even the book talks about how, uh, how he had, you know, it was kind of like a corporate team thing. You know, he had, he had the, the charisma of, of Rockney, uh, with his team. Uh, but the message was like, it was a, a corporate self-help, uh, kind of a thing. So, <clears throat> it, you know, it really gets in, it gets into that. Uh, it goes into the, another thing about the, the, uh, the, the pregame stuff with the the pep rallies. I mean, it really dives in uh, to the pep rallies. I mean, <laughs> the author really likes to talk about the pom pom squad performed its first uh, heavy rap music. Uh, you know about dancing around and and all that stuff. It, it was pretty funny. Uh, it says here when the Casophony had ebbed, the Leprechaun introduced one of the players who muttered a short speech about whipping Stanford. And then the Leprechaun presented John McLeod, the Notre Dame basketball coach, who also talked briefly about tomorrow's game. Another recorded rap song came on full blast, and the cheerleaders loosened their joints to it, every single joint in their bodies. The crooner, a young woman named MC Luscious, cried out, Boom, I got your boyfriend. Boom, I got your man. She sang the lyrics as if she meant them. And for a while, it seemed that everyone had stumbled into an MTV party. But then the leprechauns restored order by asking the crowd to give it up one last time and give it up for good for our head coach, Lou Holtz. I find this just, in hindsight, just hilarious. Thinking of this writer here having to write about uh, Pep Rally, a young, of young people uh, rap song, uh, MC Luscious. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it just it cracks me up. I mean, come on, we're, we're talking... You know, many, many years ago, it just it's just a funny thing. Um, <clears throat> but he, the author made a big deal about all this noise surrounding Notre Dame, because I, it, is, it, it is important to remember, you know, the, how much weighs on not just the coach, but on these kids uh, each week. And this had been this is, you know, this was a midterm exam week. For Notre Dame, so that's a big deal, and we all know now that these weeks don't always go that well for Notre Dame. There, they could be some rough times uh, out in the football field because the, a lot of these guys have been hardcore studying. I mean, even recently, you hear some of the guys. I want to say it was Deshaun Kaiser a few years ago uh, talking about the all nighters he was pulling the week uh, that midterm week, all nighters for for 
basically a professional athlete. I mean, let's, let's not beat around the bush here. You're looking for a professional performance come Saturdays. I, you just can't imagine that poor of sleep. Uh, you talk about diet and nutrition tables and all that, but sleep's important too. And when you're up cramming and, and studying all night and doing all that stuff, um, it's a big deal. It, it affects the entire team. Uh, so, you know, the, <laughs> it, I, I, I like that. I like that they've the author really made that uh, kind of a huge issue. Uh, so then moving on, the next chapter moves away from the '92 season, and this is it gets back to the story of Moose. Um, he uh, it, it, this, it takes it back, you know, right away. To explain basically explaining Moose's long, long time there uh, at Notre Dame, and. Uh, okay, let me just say this. As one of his coaches put it, he didn't know the name of everything we were trying to do, but he knew how to do it. His headgear was a flimsy leather helmet with no face mask of any kind, and he wore, by today's standards, mini school shoulder pads. The hip pads weren't much either. In those days, players were on the field for both offense and defense, and in 19, it says 93, but they meant 33, more played, more, moose, Play. God, this book is so badly edited. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, Moose played 521 out of a possible 540 minutes. He chose jersey number 69, and for good reason. If I got knocked upside down, he explained, my number was still the same, so people would know it was me. He broke his nose more than once, but never told anyone during a game. I was afraid to, he says, because I thought they'd take me out. I mean, so now you're starting to get into, you know, just Moose as a as a young man playing football. It talks about, uh, you know, playing against, you know, Red Grange and, uh, and Bronco Nagurski. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny quote in here. It said, I tackled Red Grange once, but Nagurski kept running over me. I've never seen anyone that strong. Everybody was afraid of him, even his own teammates. The guy playing across from me was George Musso, a 250-pound lineman, big and tough and mean. After a while, he started telling me where Bronco was coming. What do you want me to do about it? I asked him. I don't know, he said, but I'm getting the hell out of his way. I mean, <laughs> this goes back to just those days. And this is just a, this was not just a man's game. This was a brute's game, uh, football. This is some hardcore shit. I mean, this was really, really tested the limits of how tough you were uh, with the way they played. Because it wasn't just the fact, you know, they had no pads. And we talked about that in the last podcast. I mean, these guys were... It, it was a different game, different rules, and you had to be absolutely tough as nails uh, to survive, you know, this whole thing. Uh, so it goes on, and the, but then it talks about, it really dives into Moose. You know, his best sport was probably basketball, um, and it really goes into, you know, to explain <laughs> Explains, you know, how he's an All-American the last two years. Um, had, had a great moment at the end of the game against Butler where he was lying, uh, he was lying flat on his back. Uh, and at the last second, he, with the ball in his hands, flat on his back, tossed up the ball and won the game uh, against Butler. Um, and that, uh, that that's actually a pretty well-known um, part of who Moose is, is a big, big legend. Um, and he's the first and only Notre Dame basketball player ever inducted into the college and pro Hall of Fame. I mean, it's just huge. Um, it just, it just it talks a lot about, explains a lot about those times uh, back then, and especially uh, young 
you know, a young person's life back then. And also, you know, about athletics back then. Um, and so, you know, the NFL was not something that people would normally go to. And uh, people at Notre Dame told Moose, you know, when he left Notre Dame, when he, when he graduated, you know, don't go to the NFL. Uh, so we t- actually turned down a chance to play for the Chicago Bears. Uh, George House is going to play him, pay him 425 bucks a game, turn that down. Uh, and instead he took, uh, it t- took a different job. Uh, said he still enjoyed the gym. Gi- enjoy the game, but decided to accept an offer from St. Mary's College in Winona, Minnesota, where he became the head of journalism and physical education departments, served as athletic director, and coached the baseball, basketball, track, golf, tennis, and football teams. He was paid $2,500 a year, plus room and board and free laundry services. In his spare time, he wrote a sports column, and he hosted a radio show. I also drove the school bus, he said. Holy crap. How many jobs in one spot and one time can one person have? I mean, that's incredible. But that's how a lot of athletic departments were. It wasn't just you're the football coach or, you know, with a huge staff. It was like, you are going to be the coach. You're going to coach, you know, three, four sports. And this was even happening at big schools. Um, So... But there's a lot going on there. I mean, so yeah, journalism guy, you know, and and uh, <laughs> there's just a lot going on, and it, it really starts to develop Moose as a person, and, and shows you know how later in life how all these things kind of kind of mix into who we end up becoming. Um, it, it does a it talks a lot about Moose's life. Uh, there and making more money uh, playing basketball, like semi pro teams. Um, they played against the Globetrotters, uh, and you know, and this was back before the Globetrotters was like a, you know, they're gonna win, right? This, this was an actual team team. Um, they went all over him, you know, play for play for some cash. Uh, him and his brother Phil went over to Lithuania uh, to teach basketball over there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a Moose Krause took basketball to Lithuania. Uh, him and his brother Phil. Uh, it's just it's incredible. Um, you know, he, these are the lives that this generation led. It was just it, I'm always kind of jealous of it. It'd be, you know, of all the cool stuff we have going on, you know, nowadays. I look back at that era, and there was just like there was so much opportunity out there for somebody willing to really put in the work. And to take chances. And back then, maybe the chances didn't, I guess sitting here now, the chances didn't seem as grim as the chances you take now. Uh, but maybe that's not true. Maybe that maybe there was a greater chance. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but it, it reminds me a lot of my own, my grand, my own grandfather. Uh, you know, he, I won't get into that story, but uh, just another, another person from that time era that, uh, came, I want to say came from nothing, but basically, and just did all this cool stuff and ended up being, um, having a really cool and interesting life with just so many amazing stories and did so many different things. Um, it's all pretty amazing. Uh, so, uh, you know, it talks about, and, um, <laughs> talks about setting up a, a, a party with sorority girls, uh, you know, and uh, he rounded up a bunch of guys, and they were able to have this dance. And that's where he met his wife, and his wife plays a huge part of, uh, 
you know, uh, his wife Elizabeth, called Elise, plays a huge part in Moose's life um, moving forward, especially later in the book. You'll find out a lot more about that. But um, they end up getting married, and, and it talks about, you know, just kind of like young married life, you know, where, but he traveled a lot, played a lot of basketball, um, and it was basketball for, for money. Um, you know, he played against guys. He just met all these crazy interesting people. I mean, he's talk, he talks about drinking with Grantlin Rice. Um, <laughs> I mean, talk, this is a great this is a great one that I didn't know. Uh, I totally forgot from reading this book. But Moose never played in the NBA, but was one of the people who suggested to Walter Brown that if he created and bankrolled a team called the Celtics, which would play its games in the Boston Garden they might have a good chance of succeeding. So far, the Boston Celtics have won 16 NBA titles. <laughs> Moose Krause suggested, uh, that's crazy. Think about what I just said there. Uh, so the book goes on to, to, to talk more about, you know, what, what Moose was doing for money. Uh, and and he, he gave everything over to his wife. Uh, his paychecks, she took care of all the money. Uh, but he, he said he kind of got... He kind of felt stupid, you know, asking his wife for an allowance every week. Uh, so normally, you know, she took his paychecks, and then when he went and played all these basketball games, they'd pay him cash, and he'd come home and he'd give her all the cash. Well, instead of giving her like the hundred bucks or two hundred bucks or one hundred fifty bucks or whatever it was that, that that he got that night, he started giving her half, and then he would pocket half and never send anything to her. That way, he had money for like he said, he wanted money for cigars or for a drink or for gas, just some walking around change, and he felt that. Back, to, you know, that was the best thing to do. She was happy that she was taking care of everything, and he was happy that he had a little bit of, you know, coin in his pocket to to live. Um, and he just said that, you know, he didn't ever, never felt bad about it, wasn't like lying because uh, he just felt that made made them both happy. They made a good marriage, and I find that interesting because uh, that's just a lot of marriages don't work like that, uh, especially anymore. Um, it, and that's. Maybe Moose is, was totally on to something as the best way to, to go about it. I don't know. but So it definitely dives into all that, and then, then it starts directing to where Moose, Moose's future is at. It says, in the winter of 1942, when Leahy offered Moose a position as an assistant coach, uh, you know, just getting Leahy over uh, from Boston College, Moose was delighted and immediately accepted. He was going home now, back to his alma mater, back to the team he always secretly hoped to coach. Everything was just as Moose wanted it, except perhaps for one thing. If he thought he would have more free time or more time for his family working under Leahy, he was badly mistaken. The man was serious about many things. He was serious about everything. But he reserved his greatest seriousness for football. And that's what we will pick up the next time. Uh, We'll start... Diving into uh, probably my favorite coach to to talk about um, and to hear stories about, and that's Frank Leahy, uh, which is, uh, I mean, man, there, there's another book called I think called Talking Irish. The the, the Leahy guys are the best guys to, to hear these stories from. They the the way they describe him and uh, uh, and his seriousness for football. I mean, we're talking uh, Catholic, hardcore Catholic. Pre-Vatican II belief, hardcoreness on the football field. I mean, it's uh, it's funny hearing the the stories from the guys. So uh, that's it for this this round. Uh, again, you know, it, it it was an interesting 
those are interesting three chapters uh, where, you know, it first takes us into the 92 season and it kind of sheds, starts shedding the light on Lou Holtz and, and his mind mindset and, and, you know, how he's taking care of controversy. I mean, in a, in a lot of big ways. Um, and, and then, you know, it, then it dives into, you know, more about Moose and, and the biography of him kind of coming up and, you know, read the book, please read this book. Uh, I'm just kind of glossing over. There are so many details um, about uh, about what Moose was doing as a as a young man uh, th- through that time. Uh, you know, it just it just would have felt like I was reading everything there, which I think legally I can't do. Uh, so, um, you know, it, this is this is Notre Dame, and and I didn't really mean to gloss over the the. Notre Dame quarterbacks club thing. I, I was going to spend some more time on that, but I didn't want to make these too long. These, these podcasts. Um, so, but if you, if you don't know what that is, you can Google that. Um, that, that was a big deal. Uh, Notre Dame quarterback club, Kim Dunbar, uh, and you'll get a general understanding of the background from, uh, from what that turned into from what it was. Um, so I hope you're, uh, I hope you're enjoying this. I, I'm sorry I didn't have a fun new Rockney voice uh, this time around, uh, um, and I really I, I wasn't going to try to do a Lou Holtz. I, I do a terrible, terrible Lou Holtz, and I, th- I think I would just be more like mocking him uh, more than trying to do an impersonation if I if I did it. So uh, I'll leave the professional Lou Holtz uh, impersonators uh, like Rocket or whoever <laughs> uh, to do those things, uh, and I'm just going to stay put. So. Look, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm not sure when the next one will come up. Uh, probably sometime soon here in the next week or so. Uh, again, if you get a chance, please take your time. Uh, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, we got all sorts of stuff going on. Not only this, but the Off the Rails episodes, which will which will probably pick up in another couple of weeks. But uh, the OFD podcast, we're pumping out uh, some fun stuff to get us all through this no sports time and and hopefully maybe to a season. Uh, uh, coming up here in the summer or in the summer into the fall. So thanks again. Go Irish. <laughs>